Thank you, Becca, for leading us in prayer. We welcome the Farbers and our global partners who are here this weekend. I think the kegs are also possibly around this weekend, Josh and Natalie. So if you see them, please say hi. My name is David Sunday. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a joy to open God's word to us this morning. If you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17, does God exist? And if he does, can we know what God is like? How do the people in your life answer those questions? If we can trust the latest Gallup survey, 81% of Americans still believe in the existence of God. That's a six-point drop from 2017, uh, the largest drop in the history of Gallup asking that question since 1944, but it's still an impressively high number. But if you drill down deeper into the data, you discover that there are an increasing number of Americans who identify as atheists or agnostics. And if you drill down even more, you discover that even among those who say, yes, I think God exists, many of them don't want to talk about it. Many of them are indifferent to the question. They're not atheists. They're apatheists. When it comes to God, they're not interested in finding out more what he is like. They're too distracted with the notifications on their devices to put much thought or time into questions that don't appeal to their immediate felt needs. In fact, the only thing they care about religion is that you and I don't get up in their face and make it an issue. So, how do we build bridges to make God known in a culture where he is unknown, where many people would, be ra would rather be left alone than troubled with questions about God. Well, here in Acts chapter 17, we find the Apostle Paul in the middle of his second missionary journey. It's around the late summer of the year AD 50, and he's been traveling from city to city, preaching the gospel in places like Philippi, Thessalonica, Thessalonica and Berea, and he's been seeing great success in his ministry. And because of that, there's jealous people who are forming a mob, a rabble, who are wanting to go after Paul and silence him. So Paul is forced to change his itinerary and to escape from the mob, and he sets sail for Athens. And when he lands there, he has some time to kill while he waits for his ministry companions, Silas and Timothy, to come to him as soon as possible. Now, I don't know if you've got a list of places that you'd like to visit in the world before you kick the bucket, but if you lived in the first century, Athens would probably be toward the top of that list with its ancient architectural wonders like the Acropolis. It was the jewel of culture in the Roman Empire. It was the birthplace of Socrates and the home of Plato and Aristotle. So the intellectual atmosphere was vigorous, kind of like having Harvard and Yale and Oxford and Cambridge all rolled up in one place. Athletic events took place there that inspire our modern-day Olympics. The arts and music scene was electrifying. And then there was the food. Euros, spanakopita, moussaka. Who wouldn't like to visit Athens when just the mention of those things makes my mouth water? 
So if you and I were with Paul, we might have suggested, hey, Paul, this would be a great place to just kind of take a break. You know, you've got a couple weeks off. Let's, let's see some of the sights. Let's taste the food. Let's just enjoy the culture. But Paul never stops looking for opportunities to build bridges that will lead people to Jesus. And we can learn much from him as a church on how we can build bridges so that more and more people out there in our community can come to know and love and worship the God that we are adoring in here. And the first thing we see in this passage is that bridge building starts with our own hearts. If we want to make God known in a world where he is unknown, we need to care deeply about what God cares about. That's what's got to be in our hearts. Let's look at verse 16, and I'm reading from the ESV, Acts 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, here's the key phrase, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So Paul's waiting for Silas and Timothy. He's walking through the city. He's attentively observing all that the Athenian people value. He can see that they're worshiping all kinds of things, but they're ignorant of the true and living God. And what he sees provokes a very strong reaction within his heart. And the word here is the word that medically is used to describe a seizure or an epileptic fit. But it's in the imperfect tense, so it's, it's not describing here some sudden loss of temper. Paul's not having a tantrum. This is a settled, visceral response that's deep in his heart. It's a complexity of emotions blended together into one. It's, it's, it's indignation and sorrow. It's grief. It's distress. It's love, it's compassion, all boiled up together in his heart. It's the same word that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to describe what's going on in God's heart when his people build the golden calf at Mount Sinai and worship idols, or when they, they go worship the, the pagan gods, the Baals of the Canaanites. We read again and again in the Old Testament that when his people worshiped idols, they continually provoked God to his face. Same word. The heart of God is deeply distressed. His heart is moved by a jealous love that recognizes that he alone is worthy of people's love and adoration and delight and worship. And God's heart is broken and distressed and indignant and compassionate when he sees people turning away from him to worship idols because God knows that when we do that, we do it to our own destruction. And Paul sees this in the city and feels the same zeal for the glory of God's name as God feels for his people when he sees this city submerged in idolatry. I don't want to move on from this too quickly. I want to make sure we really understand this. Because Paul's cultural engagement is motivated by this deep inner passion for the glory of God and the good of people's souls. That's what's going on inside him as he engages with people. And I think it's a test for our cultural engagement, which I hear a lot about in conversations about the church's witness 
in the world today. And I think it's an important conversation for us to be having. But if what's going on inside Paul's heart isn't going on in our hearts, I don't think we're going to have as much impact for the gospel as we want to. As you engage with our culture, do you find in yourself regularly the same kind of reaction in your spirit that Paul was having in his? For instance, it's good to watch Netflix sometimes. It's good to understand what's happening in our culture, to learn what people are thinking about, to even be entertained. But if we're not careful, we become like the frog in the kettle. The heat is turned up ever so slowly so that we don't realize we're being boiled to death until it's too late. Instead of being provoked in our spirits because we have a passion for God's glory, we're titillated and amused and lulled into a spirit of complacency. Listen, friends, if we're not regularly finding in our hearts the same kind of provocation as we engage our culture, chances are we're being conditioned into conformity with our culture much more than we're transforming our culture. I've been thinking about this lately as we've been watching the reactions to the Supreme Court's decision on Roe v. Wade. It's not normal in our day to see such a huge step toward justice and human flourishing taking place in a day. Usually little steps here and little steps there and then steps back and steps back. Normally, justice happens really slowly, but this was remarkable. A decisive repudiation of one of the gravest injustices against humanity that has ever taken place in the history of our nation. And it's been an answer to the church's prayer for over 50 years. We should rejoice without reservation. Think of all the Christians who have labored in crisis pregnancy centers through the years. Think of all our brothers and sisters in Christ who have come alongside mothers in difficult situations, loving them and their preborn babies, adopting children. The church has labored faithfully in love to be a witness for the sanctity of life and now a wretched decision from 1973 that left no room for the voice of the most vulnerable in our society to be even heard, that wretched decision has been overturned. And when I heard the news break the morning of June 24th, I was rejoicing and I was praising God for what had been done. But I also saw the reactions on the news. And I saw the outrage And I was particularly riveted by the sight of a woman standing in front of the Supreme Court. This was on NBC. She was nine months pregnant. She was due to give birth any day. And she was standing there protesting the decision with these words written across her very pregnant belly, not human yet. How do we react when we see our nation submerged in idolatry? The idolatry of human autonomy, 
the idolatry of so-called reproductive choice that leaves no room for the voice of God's masterpiece in the womb. How do we react? Our response should be the same as Paul's, deep distress, indignation mixed with love, because we see our culture submerged in idolatry and we know it desecrates the glory of God and it leads to the destruction of lives. Listen, if we want to engage our culture in a way that truly builds bridges to Jesus, then we're going to have to ask God to fill our hearts with the same kind of zeal and passion for God's glory and the good of human lives as Paul had. We need to ask God, make us more like Jesus, who found it gut-wrenching when he saw the crowds harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Do you know what that's like? Do you know what it's like to experience this in your heart? That's where true bridge-building starts. You've got to care so deeply in the core of your being that where people are at is not where they should be so that you can cross over to where they're at and bring them back toward the light without being consumed by the darkness yourself because you're being swallowed up in it. We need to ask God for this conditioning of our hearts so that we'll be moved by the same thing the apostle was moved by. You've heard it said, no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Paul was someone who cared deeply for God's glory, for people's good. Let's ask God to put that in our hearts. But what do we do when our spirits are provoked? That's the next important strategy of bridge building, and that brings us to our second point this morning. If we want to build bridges to make God known in our world, we need to enter into real conversations with real people right where they're at. Look at what we see in verse 17. When Paul was greatly distressed as he saw that the city was full of idols, how did he respond? We read, so he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Notice what it didn't say. His spirit's greatly provoked. So Paul vented his indignation on all these idolaters. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't unleash his outrage on them. Instead, he comes into their world and he befriends them. He enters into conversation with them. He goes to the people who have the Bible, his fellow Jews, and what was his goal there? His goal was to show them in all the scriptures how it was all pointing to Christ. He's calling them to believe in the Messiah whom God has sent. They have common worldview, a common view of God, a common view of humanity and of sin, and he's trying to show them from the scriptures that Jesus is the one you've been waiting for. He's the one you've been hoping for. But he doesn't limit his conversations to those who share his worldview, to those who have the Bible. No, he goes into the marketplace. The word there is the agora. And don't think of this just like a shopping mall or a Costco. 
It was more than that. This is the place where people in that society came to talk about ideas, about the news, where debates would be held publicly, where the worlds of art and music and education and commerce all intersected. It was right out there in the public square. That's where Paul went. And listen, if we really believe the gospel, we won't be content to just keep it in our private lives. The gospel will thrust us out into the world and it will change the way we engage in our workplace, the way we engage in our places of education. It it, it will make us salt and light in our society, in our culture for Jesus. And notice how Paul was engaging in the public square. He wasn't shouting like a street preacher. He was looking for people who wanted to have a reasonable conversation. The word here for reasoned is the verb where we get the word dialogue from, and it's the same verb that describes what Socrates did. Paul was entering into a Socratic conversation with the people of Athens in the marketplace. He's talking with anyone who happened to be there. Some of them were philosophers, and Luke introduces us to the major schools of philosophical thought that were popular in Athens. One was a morally relativistic school, the Epicureans. The other believed in moral absolutes, the Stoics. For the Stoics, there was one supreme God among many gods who was the world's soul, and this God determined everything, but he was remote, and you couldn't know this God, and so they were fatalists. You just got to accept life the way it is. And the goal was to Detach yourself from pleasure, from pain. You don't weep. You don't laugh. You don't get carried away. You don't break down. You be a strong person. That's what the Stoics believed. Then there were the Epicureans. They had a different approach to life. For them, the gods are also remote from human affairs. But everything happens by chance in the Epicurean view. And there's no life after death. There's no judgment. So you've just got to... Suck all you can out of life while you have it. Carpe diem. Seize the day. Don't worry. Be happy. Just be yourself. Have fun. Enjoy life. Does this sound familiar? These philosophies were very common in Athens. And Paul enters into conversation with these philosophers. He doesn't say, hey, John 3.16 Start with the Bible. This is what the Bible says. Instead, he listens. He asks questions. He learns what they believe. He enters into dialogue with them. He works hard at imagining what it would be like to be them, to think like them, not yelling and screaming at them, not making them feel stupid. Paul understands we can't criticize what someone else believes until we understand it until we try to get into their mind and feel what they feel and think what they feel, think what they think. So that's what Paul's doing here in the marketplace. He's earning the right to be heard. Because why should we expect people to listen to us if we haven't listened to them, if we haven't learned where they're coming from? And as he earns the right to be heard, he starts talking to them about Jesus and the resurrection. And he has to be patient because most of them don't understand what he's talking about. And some of them don't show Paul respect. Look at the middle of verse 18. As Paul's speaking, some said, What does this babbler wish to say? 
I'm thinking of hecklers out there kind of talking back. The CSB says, this ignorant show-off. That's what they're calling Paul. Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and Anastasis, the resurrection. And they're just thinking these are two new gods, Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, which was a place also known as Mars Hill. It was an assembly of all the cultural and civic leaders, the influence brokers, the elites of that culture. And they said, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. And then Luke gives us a comment on kind of the cultural zeitgeist, the ethos of the culture in verse 21. This is what this culture was characterized by. Now, all the Athenians... And the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Again, does this sound kind of familiar? They prided themselves in being open-minded, tolerant, polytheistic. They were connoisseurs of novelty. They had itching ears. Tell me something new. So it was kind of entertaining for them to give Paul a hearing. But here's the point. The reason Paul was able to speak there in the Areopagus was because he listened carefully to them in the marketplace. He took time to hear what they believed, what they cared about, even reading their poetry, listening to the longings of their hearts. And we need to do the same. Back in March, Kate and I visited Doug and Lynn Dunton for a few days down in South Florida. And what impressed us is they live in this community with a lot of older people who are retiring down there, is that every day we were there, Doug and Lynn had people in their home or we were in other people's homes and they were having conversations with their neighbors. And they were not afraid to, t- to engage with their neighbors about God. And it was especially beautiful for us to sit around their table with their next-door neighbors and to listen to Doug and Lynn pray very lovingly for their neighbors in their neighbor's presence. They're entering into conversations with real people, and what they're doing in South Florida is a lot like what we need to be doing here in the Fox Valley. That's what a good evangelist does. An evangelist is a matchmaker, who's trying to make a connection between the longings of broken human hearts with the living and true God, who's able to fill those longings with himself. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with conversation. That brings us to the last strategic point this morning. If we want to build bridges to make God known in our culture, number three, we need to confront people with a clear message that they can either reject or accept, and we need to entrust the results to God. This is where we often stumble. We're afraid of offending people. We don't want to end the conversation, so we tiptoe around. We try to package our remarks in the most attractive way possible. We want to be winsome witnesses, and that's good. But maybe we never get around to confronting people with the truth. And Paul didn't fall into that snare. He doesn't do a market analysis to find out what the itching ears of the Athenians want to hear and try to package his message in a way that will be most palatable for them. 
No, he gives them a clear message. It's a confrontational message that they can either reject or accept, and he leaves the results to God. Look at how he starts in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now, don't you just admire Paul's skill here? He finds common ground. He doesn't come out and say, you pagan idolaters, what's wrong with you? Instead, he says, I can see you're a very religious people. In fact, I noticed you're so religious, you wanted to cover all your bases. So you've got all these different altars to all these different gods. And just in case you missed an important God out there, you made an altar and you put this inscription to the unknown God. Good for you. Good for you. And they would have been very happy if Paul would have stopped right there with this proposal. If Paul would have said, you know, there's been a new religion popping up around the Roman Empire lately, and it's about this man named Jesus. So out of respect for multiculturalism, would you mind replacing that little inscription on the altar with a new one that says, to Jesus? That way, Jesus will get some respect among the pantheon of your gods. That would have made them happy. But that's not what Paul does. He's not coming into Athens to earn a token place for Jesus in a polytheistic world. He's coming into Athens to proclaim that Jesus is Lord of all. He's sovereign over all. He's exclusive. So he says, what you worship in ignorance, this I now proclaim to you. I'm going to tell you who this unknown God is. I'm going to press his claims upon your mind and your conscience, and I'm going to call you to submission to him. That's what Paul's going to do. And what he does is he basically walks through the opening chapters of Genesis, and he shows them what God is, who God is, who humanity is, and what we owe to God. Look at how he starts in verses 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So what is Paul doing here? He's saying to the Epicureans, God is not remote, unknowable and disengaged in this world. No, he created the world and everything in it, and he is so involved in your lives that the very next breath you take comes from him. So let's do it. That came from God. That's how close he is. That's how dependent we are on him. We do not carve out a little place for God in our world and put him in a temple made by human hands. No, God has made a place for us in his world. He made everything in it. 
we do not make God dependent on us and offer him sacrifices that he needs. No, we are dependent on him for life and breath and everything. He isn't served by human hands. Then Paul goes on in verse 26 to say something that, that really would have rubbed this culture the wrong way. He says, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place. And this would have been offensive to the elite Athenians because they saw themselves as culturally and intellectually and racially superior to the other nations. They were Athens. They were the big shots of culture. Paul says, no, all of humanity owes its origin to God. He's sovereign over all of us. He's sovereign over all nations. And he puts each of us in a particular place and a particular time for a purpose, a purpose that he makes exceedingly clear in verse 27. Here it is. Why did God create us? Why does he give us breath? Why does he place us where he places us for a time? It's for this reason, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him yet he is actually not far from each one of us. This would have spoken right to the heart of a Stoic who thought God was unreachable, unknowable, and that our lives are just subject to fate and chance. Instead, Paul is saying, no, he's a God who wants to have a relationship with you. He's a God who wants you to seek him and find him, and he hasn't made himself hard to find. Actually, he's not far from any one of us, and one of your own poets recognizes that, and he quotes that poet in verse 28, who said, in him we live and move and have our being. And another one said, for we are indeed his offspring. So Paul goes on to say, if that's true, if we're the offspring of God, if we've been created in God's image, then why are you worshiping all of these man-made idols that are inferior to humanity? If you come from God, why are you stooping down to worship them? You see what he's doing here? He's showing them a God who is much bigger and much higher and transcendent than they have ever imagined, but who's also nearer and more accessible and more involved and more caring than they'd ever dreamed. And then in verse 30, he goes for the jugular vein. He does not shrink from confrontation. He says, no one here can plead ignorance. No one can remain an agnostic forever. No one can remain apathetic about God's existence forever. No one's going to be able to say in the end, but I didn't worship him because he never showed me who he was. That excuse will not stand, Paul says. And here's the jugular, verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. It's a stunning climax to a powerful message. And they are done with listening to Paul after he says these words. So let's trace Paul's logic by beginning where he ends. Where does he end? 
Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. The resurrection is a fact of history. And if Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, then Paul says, here's the necessary inference. If Christ is raised from the dead, then judgment is certain. And if judgment is certain, then here is the required application. Repentance is necessary. You see that? Jesus is raised from the dead, therefore judgment is certain, and repentance is necessary. Is that clear? Is that simple? Yeah. There's no ambiguity here. And Paul isn't holding back. He's just, he's putting it out there. And he's leaving the results to God. And I want to tell you why this is such good news. This is such good news, friends, because we live in a world that is crying out for justice. We live in a world that is littered by graveyards and trauma and human injustices and bloodshed and war and creation itself is crying out for all these wrongs to be made right. Someone has said that God's announcement of judgment is a promise that God has big ears and his ears are hurting. He is a mighty king, a lover of justice. And judgment is good news, not bad, because God's judgment shows that God really cares what he has made, cares about what he has made. God is not indifferent toward us. We matter greatly to him. Sam Albury writes, we need to see that the opposite of love is not anger, but indifference. If you are angry about something, it is because it matters to you. Indifference shows that you couldn't care less. God is saying, I care so much for the creatures whom I have made, I'm not going to let them walk away from me easily. I'm going to keep pursuing them, and one day I'm going to summon them into the presence of the one I sent to save them, the one I raised from the dead. So God's judgment is not a contradiction of his love. It is a confirmation of it, of how much we matter. He will demand an accounting of our lives. He will not ignore us or treat what we have done with the life he has given us as a matter of indifference. And judgment is good news, not bad, because it will be carried out in perfect righteousness by the one who died to save us. Jesus, who was once unjustly tried by sinful men, in the end is going to sit as the just judge of all humanity. He is so wise that he cannot be deluded, so strong that he cannot be resisted, said one of the Puritans. But he is also one of us clothed in our humanity. In our judicial system, every defendant has the right to be tried by a jury of his peers. When we stand before Christ in judgment, we won't be able to say that he did not know the realities of human experience. No, he was tempted, he suffered, he knows what it's like to walk in our shoes, he has perfect knowledge of the human condition, so his judgment will be infallibly righteous. There's only one reason the judgment of the risen Christ would be bad news for any of us, and that's if we are sneering at the judge. And that's how some people reacted to Paul's message. Look at verse 32. 
It says in the NIV, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Because to the Greeks, the cross of Jesus was foolishness and the resurrection of Jesus was ridiculous and judgment was laughable. And it's the same for many people today. A few years ago, the New York Times wrote an article about former Mayor Michael Bloomberg and his social activism. And at the end of the article, it talked about how the mayor was now 72 years old, just a few days before his 50th college reunion, and he was taken a little back by all the obituaries that he was seeing in the newspaper of his former classmates. A lot of people were dying. But the article concluded, if Bloomberg senses that he may not have as much time left as he would like, he has little doubt about what would await him at a judgment day. Pointing to his work on gun safety, obesity, and smoking cessation, he said with a grin, I am telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I am heading straight in. I have earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. He just said what millions of Americans are thinking in their hearts. And what Paul, the apostle, is saying is that the only one who has the right to head straight into heaven is the one who died for our sins and then who was raised from the dead. Jesus can go straight in to the Father's presence. Everyone else in humanity has to pass through him. He's the judge who gets in and who's out. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the one God raised from the dead. That's why Paul preached with such urgency. It's why he wasn't afraid to confront, and that's why we need to do the same. This is the message we need to proclaim to the world, whether they want to hear it or not. And we need to leave the results to God. To the age-old question, what about those who've never heard? The Bible consistently offers one answer. Go tell them. Go tell them. Tell them that Jesus is raised from the dead. Therefore, judgment is certain, and therefore, you must repent. How will you respond to that message today? Let's look again at verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. We'll put it off for later. So Paul went up out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. And I pray that's where we will land today that we will repent and believe in Jesus and then proclaim this saving message to the world. What are the ABCs of repentance? A, acknowledge your sin to God and turn, turn away. B, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for your sins and that he was raised from the dead and that he can give you everlasting life. And C, commit your life to him. Hand over the reins 
Say, Jesus, be my Lord and Master. And the great news is he died on the cross with his arms stretched out just like this, as if to say to every repentant sinner, come to me and I will save you. So let's bow before him now and let's respond to our great Savior with hearts of repentance and faith.